morning, everyone. Um, I'm so encouraged this morning. We, um, we get the opportunity to go to lots of different churches. And I was just stood there just now thinking, genuinely, I've never been to a church and felt as encouraged as I, I do today. And it's not exaggeration, I mean it. Having been part of this right at the beginning, um, sending out this small group with big hopes for what God might do in this town. Um, and you may or you may not know, but church planting is not easy. <laughs> and for churches to be planted and to be established and to grow only happens as God works miracles. So the fact that we're here today like this is an evidence of a miracle working God among us. Isn't that good? And it's so encouraging to welcome people into membership and to see the kids. And I'm so encouraged. I am so, so encouraged. Because I know that you've not taken any shortcuts in being here today. I know that this church is built on an excellent foundation. Not trying to build on anything else other than God's word. Not trying to be anything else other than a place of worship and prayer. Uh, A community, a family that loves one another imperfectly but does its best to love one another and support one another through God's word, through prayer, through worship. So I can't be more encouraged because there are shortcut ways of gathering a crowd, but it doesn't actually bear great fruit. But I think you're pursuing something of sincerity, authenticity, that really honors God, and that would be a blessing to this town and beyond it. So I mean it when I say I've never been as encouraged visiting a church as, I've, as I am today. It's been over a year since we were last here. Um, and clearly God's doing a great thing. So I hope you feel encouraged. Even if you're, if you're new to this church, be encouraged. It's a good place to join. I think this is an excellent church. So I want to say well done to all of you. Well done for persevering through, especially those of you that are there at the beginning. Just spoke to Andy, founding member of the church. And I said, you know, it's just great. I'm so encouraged. And this morning as we are worshipping, I love how the Spirit of God goes before us as we gather. And there was a theme which came through, which is the theme of this sermon, which is that we as God's people have the privilege of being in the Father's house, in God's house. And Dayu in his prayer quoted Psalm 92. Don't you love how Dayu just quote after quote, scriptures just in him? How it f- I love that. I'm so encouraged by his prayers. And he, I was like, where's that then? So I looked it up, Psalm 92. The righteous thrive like a palm tree and grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. And it's this phrase, planted in the house of the Lord. They thrive in the courts of our God. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means you've been planted, you're like a seed, in the house of the Lord. In God's house, in the Father's house. A seed is sown, dies in the ground, and then it begins to sprout and draws from beneath and becomes big. And I think this is a church which has been planted in the house of God. And we as Christians are planted in the house of God. And being in the house of God is your great, great privilege. It's why you exist, to be in God's house. The Father's house. To be children in the Father's house. I wonder how you'd answer that question. Why do you exist today? Why do you breathe? Why do you have breath in your lungs? 
Why is it that you live today on planet Earth? Let me answer that question for you. It's that you might be in the Father's house and know the Father. To know God, your greatest privilege, your greatest privilege. What's the reason we live and why do we exist? What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So I want to speak into that. And I also want to speak from a passage that also is uh, sobering in many ways. It comes with a big warning to us. It's challenging. But I want to just, having re-emphasized what came through in the worship, say this is what we're thinking about, what it means to be in the Father's house, what it means to be in the Lord's house, what it means for us to enjoy these privileges. And so we're reading from John chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible with you, John chapter 2, verses 13 to the end of the chapter. We'll read it and then I'll pray and we'll work through it together. So John chapter 2, verse 13, and I'm reading from the CSB translation. The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling oxen, sheep and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, This temple took 46 years to build, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them, since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this great privilege that you've reminded us of already today, the privilege that your children have, to have full, constant access to belong in your house. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you prepared a place for us in your Father's house through the agonies of the cross. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you've come into our hearts to take us there. That we get to dwell in the presence of the Heavenly Father, our Father, always and forever. And so, Lord, given how much this cost you, and given how great a a privilege this is for us, and given the fact that we live in a world that is being constantly attacked by the powers of darkness and evil, We recognize this privilege is one we must contend for, pursue, fight for at times. Maybe at times we need you, Lord, to come and turn tables and disrupt things, 
to refocus our eyes again on what matters most. May we be a worshipping people before we're anything else. May we be a people who worship God. And I pray today, encourage us and help us pursue these things. In Jesus' name and for his glory, Father. Amen. John's Gospel, possibly my favourite book in the Bible, if such things are allowed, tells about Jesus as the Christ. John wrote this Gospel to to reveal to the world that Jesus, this one, come as a baby who, who was crucified and who was raised again. He wrote this book that we might be convinced that Jesus Christ is God. And so he has careful, carefully and meticulously written down these events of Jesus' life and brought from them the theological, the the meanings of them that reveal what God is like to us. And so everything's ordered suitably, carefully, under the inspiration of God himself. And this scene comes immediately after the first sign that Jesus performed, the turning of water into wine. And actually, these two scenes are very contrasting. The scene of the turning of the water into wine was actually quite discreet initially. Jesus almost, it seems, reluctant to be pulled into the crisis in that moment. What does this have to do with me when his mother came to me? What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, his hour being the the crucifixion. He's drawing always attention to his ultimate reason for coming to earth, to be crucified, to deal with sin and suffering and death. That's why I've come primarily And she's not thwarted by that response from him. She says, the best piece of advice in the whole Bible, she says, do whatever he tells you to do. Best piece of advice in the whole Bible. Do what Jesus tells you to do. Right? If you and I could put that into action all the time, how better our lives would be for it. Just do what he tells you to do. So Jesus says, okay, fill the jars up with water. They fill them up with water. And next thing we know, the best wine they've ever tasted. And the whole while, it seems, Jesus is performing this miracle behind the scenes, enjoying the feast, enjoying the wedding, making sure everyone else gets to enjoy it and have a wonderful time. You can say, this is Jesus who loves a party in the wedding. You could say, in the temple, Jesus appears to be more like the party pooper. So I wonder, which Jesus are you more drawn to? Which half of John chapter 2 would you rather be in the wedding with the wine or the temple with the whips and as Christians we actually don't get to choose we receive Christ and the fullness of Christ in his ministry And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, then you'll probably be able to say, do you know what, there are times when it feels like I'm drinking the finest wine. He is so good to me. So gentle, so many wonderful gifts, so generous. There's times when my walk with God, there's a sweetness to it. And then you might say, and do you know what, there are times when it feels like the tables are being thrown over and it's chaos. 
there are times when the power of God maybe comes in such an arresting way that I'm overwhelmed. And if I'm being honest, it's not very comfortable. But Jesus is working toward the same ultimate goal at the wedding as he is in the temple. And he is good, always. And, and he is always wanting to glorify the Father. And he's wanting you and I as his people to know how loved we are, how precious we are, how included we are in his plans. And so there's something very significant happening here. Keep your eyes on Jesus and you'll see him do amazing things all the time. And in chapter 1, it says in verse 37, uh, the disciples come to him and Jesus says, what are you looking for? You know, those are the first words of Jesus in John's Gospel. What are you looking for? The second words we find of Jesus in verse 39 are, come and you'll see. Come and you'll see. We want you to know Jesus. Jesus is what it's all about. This church exists for Jesus Christ, Christ church. We, we have no message other than Jesus himself. Jesus is our message. Jesus, it's him. It's who he is. It's, it's what he's done. That's the reason why churches exist, or certainly should exist, that we would know him, that we would see what he does, and that we would be transformed by him. So this scene starts in verse 13, with us being told it's the Jewish Passover. This annual festival is when the Jews would gather to celebrate the power of God as God led the Israelites out of their captivity and their slavery in Egypt. The lamb's blood was shed and put on the lintels of the door as the angel of the Lord passes through Egypt and as judgment comes upon Pharaoh and upon the Egyptians. And we find the Israelites, the people of God, on account of their faithfulness to God's instruction regarding the blood of the lamb they find the blood that the angel of death passes over them and then they're led out through the parting of the sea into freedom into salvation and we recognize as Christians that all of these things are pointing us to Christ who finds us in our slavery who finds us enslaved to our sin but on account of the blood, his blood shed for us, God's judgment, God's condemnation, God's punishment, God's wrath towards us passes over because Jesus takes it. And then we are led, as it were, out of our slavery through the parted ocean. All that separated us, all that held us back, all that kept us from our destiny. Jesus dealt with the ocean parts. We walked through into salvation and freedom. Free men and women, no longer slaves. And Jesus, as he is walking towards Jerusalem for this Passover, he has come to be that Passover lamb. And as he's walking there, you guarantee it, he's thinking these things through. He's mulling over it. Probably several days of walking to get to Jerusalem. Thousands and thousands are gathering for the Passover. Huge crowds gathering. Coming with your sacrificial animal to lay at the altar. Jesus aware all of this has to do with 
the very reason why he is on planet Earth as a man, knowing that he would suffer, knowing that he would in Jerusalem be, as it were, the sacrifice for God's people, motivated by his love for his father and his love for his people. He's making that journey. That's on his mind. You're on his mind. I'm on his mind. His suffering, his coming suffering would be on his mind. The journey that he made with his parents, a journey which he made many times. He's going to his father's house. He's going to the temple. He's going to the place where God's presence is. That's what he's anticipating as he heads towards Jerusalem. And the temple, through the story of the Bible, has always been this place where the presence of God is particularly manifest where God particularly manifests or makes his presence known in the temple. The very earliest temple would be Eden, the Garden of Eden, where God walked with man and woman. And we find a pattern set in Eden which repeats itself through the scriptures, where you go, such paradise, such freedom to be with God, face to face with God, that was their privilege. And then the serpent came and evil came. And Genesis 3 happens, and deception happens, and they bought the lie. And a seed of evil was sown in their hearts. And they are banished from the first temple, the first place where God's presence was manifestly there. And it's so tragic. And if you've ever attempted to teach your kids this story, they will say, oh, I wouldn't have done it, Dad. I'd have resisted the snake. Yeah, bet you would have. (laughs) I would, why did they do it? Why did we have to lose paradise? A child can get the tragedy of what took place there. And humanity from that moment has been longing to get back to paradise. And your life, whether you're conscious of this or not, has been spent trying to find the garden where I'm rested, where I'm peaceful, where I'm known where I'm loved, where I am able to be all that God's made me to be, in his presence. That's why you exist, for the presence of God. Every longing of your heart that you've yet to find fulfillment is only going to be found and met in knowing God and in his presence. And this whole story repeats itself through the scriptures. So we find the journey of Moses through the desert, And he cries out to God. He says, if you don't go with us, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us out. Moses was utterly dependent on the presence of God. The presence of God was central for his people. Then we have the tent and the tabernacle, the place where God's presence was. And then David gathers the finances and the wealth to build a temple which Solomon, his son, ultimately builds. We have this glorious temple, this first temple which is established. And then it's not long before the serpent enters again. We have Hezekiah brings in the enemies of God right into the temple to see the temple's finest treasures. What are you doing bringing these? What, what's happening? Then we find the Babylonians invade and they rob the temple of the treasures. They take the temple out. The temple treasures out. The temple is desecrated. And then we have the people of God returning back to the temple under Ezra's leadership. And then Nehemiah's and rebuilding the wall, the sense of the presence, gathering again to the presence of God, the temple again being restored. But it's a picture, it's cyclical. It's this picture of what's 
always happened with God's people is you find this place where God's presence is beautifully, wonderfully, gloriously, and then evil enters, and God's people are not quick enough to deal with it. And suddenly there's this sense of compromise. These things repeat themselves through the scriptures. They repeat themselves through history. And so as Jesus enters the temple, the house of God, and he looks around, I want you to imagine Jesus as he enters the very threshold of the temple, as he walks towards this vast building, my father's house. And what does he see? He sees thousands of cows and sheep. Imagine the smell. Imagine what the floor looked like. Right? Imagine it. And he's seeing transactions taking place. He's seeing people with their animals, which they've reared and brought to sacrifice, being told, not good enough, you're going to have to buy one of ours. He's seeing this place, which should be a place of worship, a place of prayer, a place where God's people gather together to enjoy their privilege of being in his house, and he's seeing it made a marketplace. And he looks on, staggered. Imagine that, imagine his face. He's aghast. He's silent. At what point did the the vendors appear in the temple? Gradual change? A gradual shift? And suddenly before we realize it, they're selling right there. And it can be subtle. And in the church it can be subtle. So I start today by saying I am so encouraged by this church. I'm encouraged by its foundations. I'm encouraged by your priorities. I'm encouraged that you read the Bible, that you pray, that you sing songs. I'm encouraged that you're not here because of anything really overtly wonderful besides your commitment to Christ and to his message and to being church together. You're not here because we put a bouncy castle on for the kids, right? I don't know how good the coffee's going to be afterwards, but I'm not here for the coffee. And I'm not sure you are. You're here on the basis of something else. There's a few nods. Yeah, the coffee's not great. <laughs> but we love the church. At what point can these things shift before we realize it? This isn't church. It doesn't feel like worship is the priority of this church. It doesn't feel like God's word is forming and shaping this church. Something's changed. Something's changed. I wonder how you would consider the church in this nation today. If Jesus walks into his church today in this nation. It's a challenging thing for us to consider. And as someone who has responsibilities for leadership in the church... I can tell you the pressure you feel all the time to appease people, to give people what they want, to appease even the world around us and society around us. If we just were a bit more like that, then maybe people would want to come. So what we need to do is be a bit more like the world, and so maybe the world would want to come. You can see how that 
train of thinking can result in suddenly compromise. And what is this church? What is it? Something's been lost. So what does Jesus do? Does Jesus do, just walk in and go, oh, hey, guys, probably not the best place to do this. Um, does he say, uh, just move it along a little bit. Let's just make sure prayer's a priority here. Let's look at what he says. He makes a whip. He grabs cords. He, the, the word is rushes, bull rushes. He grabs these weeds and he wraps them. He makes a whip. This is not a cat of nine tails, you know, the one with bones on it and leather straps. It's long grass. Right? So this whip is not intimidating. But Jesus walks in and everyone leaves. He raises his voice. He flips the table. He is yelling and he is angry. And everyone leaves. Why? That's a really scary whip. I hope you don't whip me with that. That's not, that's not the reason they left. Imagine, right, the godliest person you know, the kindest person you know, the most generous person you know, the most self-controlled person you know. Self-controlled never lashes out, never seems to get carried away emotionally, always seems to be in control. And then they suddenly yell at the top of their voice in anger. No one had ever met anyone like Jesus before. So self-controlled, so gentle, so kind, so generous. Miracle worker, turns water into wine. The guy you want at the wedding and suddenly yelling, terrifying, absolutely. They'd never seen authority like it. So they, they run, they run. Jesus will not tolerate in his house anything that would rob God of the glory that God is worthy of. And he will drive out the evil forces. Now this is what we have to hold in mind, is our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in this world. That's where our warfare is. So Jesus isn't going to war against flesh here. He's coming in and he's seeing the serpent's back, the snake's back. He's seeing the evil one is back. And the evil one has got into God's temple, has got into God's house. And we look and we think, oh, if only, if only Adam, when the serpent came, smashed it immediately, got rid of it. Jesus comes, he sees the serpent, and he goes to work. He doesn't mess around. He doesn't fudge about. He doesn't ignore the, the, the reality of evil and sin in front of him. And he goes and he says, this is my father's house. He is, just as he's moved by compassion at the wedding, it's still compassion in the temple. 
it's still concern and care for his people. Because ultimately what we need is not the promotion at work. What we need is not the house of the extra bedroom. What we need is not even the child or the grandchild or the partner or the husband or the, the, th- the most immediately presenting needs in our lives, the greater need of our hearts is knowing the Father. So Jesus, Jesus came and he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What does he come to bring? What has God come? What's the greatest gift that God has to bring to you today? I would say that even greater than your forgiveness, even greater than, than knowing peace, even greater than belonging to the church is the privilege God's people have of knowing God the Father as the Father. And so that when we are born again, sown into the Father's house, planted in the Father's house. We grow up in the Father's house as the Father's children. What security that gives you. What value, what status. You're a daughter of God the Father. You're a son of God the Father. You dwell in his house. His house is your house. His presence is your privilege. Why would you want to compromise by messing around with anything else. And so when Jesus comes to us and he sees us and, he, and we are called now, my body is a temple of God. His spirit within me. We are his temple. This is his house where he dwells now. Not in the, the brick and mortar, but in living stones being built together, the very people of God. That's who we are, where his presence dwells. Does he not have the right sometimes to flip over some tables? I want to illustrate this for you. This is one of my favorite illustrations. And so if you've ever heard me preach before, you may have heard me use this illustration, which is a few of you. But many of you haven't because there are many new faces here. So I'm going to go ahead and use it because I find it helpful. I want you to imagine that you've invited some people around to your house for a meal. Knock at the door. Your guests have arrived. You welcome them in. Make yourself at home, you say to them. Go and take a seat in the lounge. Dinner's nearly ready. You bring them through to the dining room. If you have a dining room, you put them down at the table. If you eat at the table, you serve up your best meal. You're having great banter. You're having a great time. These are good friends. You're enjoying this. This is a great evening. One of your guests said to you, "Uh, sorry, do you mind if I just... Can you just excuse me? I just need to uh, excuse myself. And you say, yeah, fine. Uh, Bathroom's upstairs. You go ahead. Five minutes later, your guest hasn't returned. It's all right. Their business. (laughs) Ten minutes later, they still haven't come back. Twenty minutes, and you're going over the ingredients. (laughs) They didn't say they had any dietary requirements. You're worried. So you, you, up you go. You head towards the bathroom. You notice the bathroom door's open. And they're not there. Strange. 
then you hear a noise down the corridor. And you see your bedroom door is ajar. And you walk into your bedroom. You find all your bank statements strewn all over the floor. You find all your drawers have been pulled out. And there your guest is sat at your desk with your computer open, flicking through your files. Going through your search history. And you're like, what are you doing? And they say, you said, make yourself at home. I'm just trying to get to know you a bit better. Right, so here's the point. When you invite Jesus into your life, does he come as a guest? Or does he come to belong? Do you say, make yourself at home. Go where you want. Look where you want. Or is he restricted to certain rooms at certain times? Sunday morning at 10.30 is your slot. Jesus, over to you. Four o'clock in the afternoon is my time. What's the drawer that you don't want Jesus to pull open? Where do you not want him to go? What's the spot you don't want him to look in? Because that's where he's going. And that's where he wants to go. Why? Because he wants to clean out the temple and get rid of impurities, and get rid of corruption, and ensure that this is the place where God's presence is not rivaled by anything else. He's motivated by compassion and love for you. So you can trust him. Which means that there are going to be moments where things are said, and it's uncomfortable. So Laurie read that scripture earlier. That was a difficult scripture. There may, have, there may be people here who have lost loved ones, even recently. Maybe you've even lost a child, and you know the agony of that pain. Have you gone to God with it? What is the pain? What is the tension? What is the challenge? What's the area of your life where you feel like it's locked up? I can't quite handle this. Jesus comes to the temple. And he says, I'm going to, this needs to be, this is my father's house. He he sees you like that. And so, like a good doctor, if he can see a wound, he's going to want to come and bring healing to that wound. Sometimes he puts his finger on it and you go, ow. Don't touch that. And he says, no, that's why I've come to heal. We're all going to have our areas of pain our areas of regret our areas of disappointment our areas even of a sense of feeling ashamed or hurt or where you've been hurt or you've been the victim Jesus comes, Jesus moves towards us and look, he found he found, in the passage it says repeatedly, he found what does he find? I want to quickly read a couple of verses from First Chronicles This is David speaking to Solomon. Let's get the reference right. So First Chronicles 28, verses 9 to 10. As for you, Solomon, my son, 
Know the God of your Father and serve him wholeheartedly and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches every heart and understands the intention of every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you abandon him, he will reject you forever. Realize now that the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. I love that. This is just as the temple is being built. The Lord searches every heart. Comes in and he searches. What does he find? He's come to fill the temple with his very presence. You have been called to build a house. To build a house. So let's think about this church. This church is a house being built. You're part of it. You've all got a crucial role to play. You've all got a contribution to make. Each of you have. A house for the Father, for his presence, where he's prayed to, where he's worshipped, where he's loved, where he is delighted in. Don't let anything corrupt what this is, right? Don't let anything else come in. Don't let anything else be more of a priority to you when you gather than the glory of Jesus Christ. Don't let anything else be a higher priority. When you're looking for a church, look for a place where the word is read, the word is taught, Jesus is spoken, Jesus is worshipped, where there is true love, true affection, true humility, true desire to learn and to grow and to do better, right? Because no church is perfect. You know that's true. And I'm sure you've heard it said, when you think you found the, the perfect church, don't join it because it won't be perfect once you have, or something like that. But the point is, we are building and we are filling the earth with the glory of his presence. And so this work, which, you know, Jesus Jesus goes on to say, no, zeal for your house will consume me. And literally, it did consume him at the cross. Knock down this temple, he says, and in three days I'll rebuild it. There was never a more perfect temple than Jesus Christ, where the fullness of God indwelt humanity and human flesh. He was the perfect temple, more perfect than Solomon's temple. He is the perfect dwelling place of God. And he says, you, not, you break down, you destroy me. And of course, he goes to the cross where he's broken, where he bleeds, where he dies, where the temple, as it were, of his flesh, of his body, was destroyed and crushed. Where he dealt with sin, ultimately and forever. Where he killed the power of the evil one. Where he put the, the disarmed, it says uh, in Thessalonians, disarmed the, the authorities, mocking them, putting them to open shame. And he rose again three days later. The work was finished at the cross, wasn't it? Where he says, it is finished. He says that at the cross, not the resurrection. But the resurrection is this glorious proof that everything was done according to what was written. And now there is a new temple. We, the church, we are the new temple, the place where God's glory dwells. And until Jesus returns, our 
our calling is to go to the ends of the earth, is to bring this temple to the ends of the earth, to gather people in, is to say to everybody, you breathe, you breathe to know God. Come and know God. Come and know sins forgiven. Come and know the presence of God filling you. Know the Spirit of God living with you. Come and know this God. That's why we evangelize. Not just because we want people to fill the seats in a hall, but because we have tasted something wonderful that we want others to taste and to love as well. The good wine, the finest wine. And so this is what's being achieved around the world today. And you know what? I know it can be easy to be discouraged, but be encouraged because around the world today, thousands and thousands of people are coming to know Jesus every single day. And we live in a very secular Western context where, right, let's be honest, we get a hard press, right, as Christians, especially Bible-believing Christians, right? Not very cool. Now, we've got a battle that we must fight, and we fight this battle with his word, the sword in our hands. We don't park this, and this isn't a church that is parking God's word. But be encouraged around the world, things are happening, and we're going to see it here too. God has not forgot the UK, and he's not forgot this nation. We planted this church because we want people to know God, and we want the glorious presence of God, the temple, to keep growing as bricks are being added. Why don't we stand and we'll, we'll take, I just obviously taking communion is the best way of responding, I think, to this word. Let's stand. In the bread and in the wine, we remember Christ and his body broken and his blood shed. We remember, as it were, the temple, his very body, broken for us. Knowing in that moment sin was conquered. Praise God. Just as the, is the, is the communion ready? The bits ready? It's ready. Let's pray. I thank you, Father, that we're called to dwell in your house. And we praise you that you come to dwell within us. Lord, we open our hearts to you again today. And we invite you, come in, make your home in us. Make your home in us. I thank you, Lord, that you will drive out all that pollutes. You will drive out all that corrupts. You will have us to be a house of prayer, a house of worship, a house where you're, you are Father God. So I just ask you by your spirit as we go to take the bread and the wine now, help us to see the things that you found, to confess, to bring before you, Lord, to confess our sins before you, to repent of them, to know that as we take the bread and the wine, we don't do so in a casual way. We, we do so reverently in awe of what you've done for us. Lead us, I pray, into greater freedom and joy in your presence. Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you.
Amen.